what am I thinking about and what am I doing and who am I around when my behaviors are what I want them to be? And then on the flip side, what, what am I thinking about? What am I focusing on when they're not what I want them to be? And then how can I change that? Like, there's absolutely nothing more important than that, just to, to, like, just to exist in the world as a happier, healthier, more productive person, much less in the performance setting. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Welcome to 2022. Let's get this year started in fine fashion. My guest today is Addie Bracey. She is an expert in mental training for athletes. She excels on the road, on the track, on the trails, and in the mountains. She's a certified mental performance consultant, author of a brand new book called Mental Training for Ultra Running. She's consulted with elite athletes in various sports outside of running. She's an Olympic level runner and a three-time mountain runner of the year. You'll want to hear Addie's thoughts on self-talk attentional style and focus, her experience at the 2018 Level 100, why self-awareness is so important, and are women tougher than men? And today's discussion is my hope that although much of the conversation is specific to ultra running, you'll see that this has a connection to life. Life is, after all, an endurance sport. Let's get this party started. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I'm so excited to have Addie join us today. So thank you, Addie, for taking time out of your busy schedule. Sure. Yeah, happy to be here. Let me start with this, Addie. I, I get raised eyebrows. Some of the listeners may know I've, I've finished a couple 50-mile ultras, and I still say I don't identify as a runner. And, and, you know, that people laugh and, you know, kind of get, give me raised eyebrows. How in the world can you not identify as a runner if you've done a 50-mile race? I, I look at myself more as an endurance athlete. But I think for you, it was a little bit different. Did you not start, you know, for my research, I think, you started running pretty young. And I guess the question I would pose to you is, do you identify as a runner? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think I've never, I don't think I've ever not identified as a runner. Yeah. I started pretty young. I was probably six or seven when I did my first race. My dad was a big runner. So I got pulled into it at a young age. So, um, very much identify as a runner and don't remember a time in my life when I did not Wow. That's, that's awfully young. <laughs> I don't even, my first 50 K was, I don't know, six or seven years ago. So, I mean, 5 K not 50 K anyway. So what, I mean, I know we're going to get into this and really a lot of this podcast can be about the, the mental side, the psychological side of this. Is there, do you think there's a danger in identifying as a runner or, or anything, especially as it revolves around sport is that, do you think that's a problem? How do we keep that in a healthy kind of a healthy stance? Yeah, that's a good question. And my, my answer would be no, I don't think it's unhealthy to identify as a runner, but or as an athlete, you know, insert whatever thing, or it could be whatever your career is. But I think when it gets unhealthy is when you over-identify with that, or that becomes too big a piece of your identity, or maybe even more specifically, when you start to attribute your worth in that identity to your results and what your results are. So that's a slippery slope, and it can be sometimes difficult to maybe like 
parse out the difference between those things and recognize that you can still identify as a runner or an athlete or, you know, whatever the thing is, even if that means falling short sometimes, or even if that means, you know, not getting the thing uh, that you thought you needed to, to prove that you're that person or that athlete or that runner or whatever it is. So I think it's a healthy thing, but just being honest with yourself on how far that identity goes. And if your relationship with that piece of your identity is a healthy one. There's nothing more grumpy than an injured athlete. I watch athletes when, when they get hurt and they can't perform their sport anymore. It's, it's sometimes a little painful to watch as they go, okay, that's all I do is that, that sport. So I think what you're saying is just keep that in a healthy, maybe a healthy balance. Yes. Uh, you know, you, yeah, you started, I mean, I think your background is really running on the track, right? I mean, that's, that was your early running career. And lately you've really gravitated toward ultra running. And what is it about ultra running that, that you kind of enjoy? That's a good question. And, and yes, I did. Gosh, I was almost exclusively on the road and the track from let's say middle school until I was about 30, 31. So a long time. I found the trails first, but I wasn't doing ultra distances. And it was kind of uh, serendipitous that I was exposed to ultra running when I was in grad school for sports psychology. So really what attracted me was the mental piece. I was fascinated by what was happening. I think that with some of the athletes and in some of the races happening these days, like uh, races like Big's backyard. If you, if you know what that is, it's not a set distance. There's not even a set time. You just go until you can't go anymore. Um, there's no stopping. There's no sleeping. Uh, and to see how much longer and further people are going every year to me is almost as fascinating as watching, you know, like the um, journey towards the sub two hour marathon, you know, what that's like a maybe um, trying to push the limits of human physiology. And I kind of see ultra running as really trying to push the, the limits of human psychology. And I got obsessed with it. And so, yeah, one of the easiest ways for me to further understand it was to be out there doing those crazy things too. Wow. So th that's kind of what I say is I don't do ultras for the physical aspect, which again is sometimes surprising to people. I do it for the mental side of it. And it, I think it's, it's one of the best training grounds for really pushing your, your mind to a place that I, I just haven't been able to replicate in normal life. So that's fascinating. I also, I'm actually writing a chapter right now in a textbook on enduring performance. How do we perform for long you know, periods of time? And so this is fascinating to me of what happens when the finish line goes away. What, I mean, what does that do to our psychology, you know, to keep going? I mean, any thoughts on what, what is that in taking away the finish line? Because we know from performance psychology, the finish line is a big, you know, is a big driver of performance. And what does it do to the mind to take that away and just say, go as long as you can. Any thoughts on that? I mean, to be honest, that's, I think that's why I'm so intrigued by, again, this, there's this one kind of race happening that's like that because the brain doesn't love that. When we even think of pacing, which everybody that's a runner knows, and that can even be taken more subjectively, you know, maybe just in the sense of life from a pacing is not a vague concept, you know, from a psychological and physiological standpoint, the, the, the more like, I guess, scientific or biological term for that is called anticipatory regulation, which means your body decides what effort is appropriate in a given moment, whether that's mental or physical based on how long it thinks it has to go. So when you take that piece out and it doesn't know how long it has to go, it's not great at that. So I, I don't think it's necessarily possible to perform well by just removing a finish line or maybe not by doing that, but if that happens, but the athletes that do well in that situation create their own, I don't want to say finish line, but checkpoints, you know, whether it's mm. like through one lap at a time, okay, let's just get through one hour at a time. So you still have to give your brain 
something to strive for and then some kind of reward for doing that. I don't think it's uh, enough to just go in blind and and not like try to replicate any kind of uh, experience that would encourage the brain to keep going because it likes that uh, like dopamine hit from accomplishing something, you know, whether in a race, it's an aid station or hitting halfway or whatever it is, you can, you can create that for yourself. It sounds like we can, we can play games with our minds, right? You know, I've, I've competed at the Leadville 100 and, you know, trying to, and I, I didn't finish. So I'll be very clear about that, but just trying to run a distance, like a hundred miles, which you, you have done. That is hard, especially if you've never done it to wrap your mind around. So you got to play little games, right? One more mile or one more step or one more aid station or whatever it is to keep you what moving forward. Right. Totally. Yeah. And, and don't get be too hard on yourself. That has one of the lowest finish rates in the country. I think it's like under half the people finish and it was my first hundred too. And it's not an easy one, but no, you're absolutely right to go in and be thinking about, I've got to run a hundred miles right now is not productive or a fun way to do it. So you got to break it up and chunk it up and yeah, give yourself like the little wins along the way. And that's a mindset that can and should be applied, you know, again, in the more subjective sense, just in life in any, in any form. Was, was, I know you competed in two, I think it was 2018, correct? At, at Leadville? Uh, yes. Was that your first hundred? It was. It was. What? And I, in fact, I'd only done my first 50, I think that March. So right. I, I, I jumped quickly to hundreds. <laughs> what did you think of not only uh, running hundred miles, but what do you think of the Leadville course? What was the hardest part of that race? Yeah, I I love Leadville. I've spent a lot of time up there since then. The course is awesome. Like objectively, it's not that hard of a course, but the altitude is hard. And I think that that's a piece that is interesting for hundreds because it's already so important to be patient in those races and altitude, like running a whole race, you know, above 10,000 feet is something that catches up to you later. And so if you're not smart early, you get punished, which is exactly what happened to me. I'm just cruising along like, man, this is easy. Uh, and then I hit 60 miles and was like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing okay. <laughs> you know, and kind of had a long, a long road home. So I think it was, um, it was a, an experience that I needed. And I learned a lot about hundreds, I think, by having kind of a failure in my first one and realizing how it's not that much about running. So when you were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, when you said I've done fifties and yeah, attempted hundreds and I don't identify as a runner, it's like, I don't think that's that crazy because in my opinion, ultras aren't that much about running. They're, they're about running, but they're not that much about running in my opinion. Yeah. And let's be clear with the listeners, Addie's, let me put it in air quotes, failure was a second place finish. So that's, that's pretty good that you, you had that failure. So talk me through that. So at about 60 miles in, what, what, what happened and how did, how'd you, how'd you get through it? Did you find that you recovered from that, you know, in the next 40 miles? What did that look like? No, I did not. And and I, I'll even be more clear. I don't, second place was great. I don't, I don't call that a failure, but just knowing what the last 40 miles looked like and how I was handling it, I called that a failure. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was my first hundred. I had just started doing ultras and trail running for a couple of years and was doing pretty well. And I think I had a little bit of a an unhealthy ego going into the race and thought that it was my race to lose and that there was no one that was going to beat me. And I was kind of obsessed or very distracted by what was happening around me and um, what place I was in and how far back the next person was. So it was just very distracted for much of the race. And that led me to rush through aid stations, not stop and take care of my needs, thinking that it wasn't that big of a deal, you know, not eating or drinking because 
my stomach was hurting and thinking that was okay to just stop eating and drinking. And so, yeah, what happened at 60, coming back through Twin Lakes the second time, which is, yeah, around 63, 64 miles, the next woman passed me. And that just completely deflated, you know, any, just completely deflated me mixed with all the mistakes I made early on because I was so distracted by what she was doing and rushing through the aid stations and not taking care of myself. You know, I had that ego hit while I was also feeling pretty bad because I hadn't been eating and my feet were hurting and I didn't stop to change socks and just kind of all these things. And so, no, it never got better. It only got worse. I think I walked all of the last 15 miles. And and in fact, I even sat down on a rock with five miles to go and was like, I'm done. I, I can't finish wow. it. And my pacer was like, are you kidding me? Like you have five miles to go get up. So it was tough to experience. And it was, it was one that I needed and it woke me up in a lot of ways and showed me again, what I just said, like, I do still think I was the most, the well, most well-trained athlete in that race, but that is what showed me firsthand that that's not enough. You know, it's not enough just to do the training. You've got to have the right mindset. You've got to be patient. You've got to Ooh. focus on yourself and not let people distract what you need to do. You can't, you can't put um, things off until later. You got to address the issues as they come up and adapt and pivot. And instead, I was kind of trying to force the race that I had seen in my head so many times was trying to force that to, to happen, even though that clearly was not what was happening. I was like refusing to accept it. Well, uh, not to, you know, you know, misery loves company kind of thing. But but just in, when we I think for for an athlete like me and a lot of my friends, to see somebody like you, to hear that you struggled, I don't know, that almost like, ah, we can, we can relate to that. You talk about this idea of paying attention to the wrong things and what should we be focusing on? And so what did you learn from that? I mean, what was your, your takeaway from that last 40 miles that you're going to do different next time, or or maybe you have done different? Yeah. You know, it took me a couple more races of making that same mistake. And this summer was a big turning point for me I ran the Western States 100 and had a similar experience where I was very distracted by what outcome I wanted and was very distracted by my competitors and was making poor decisions and not stopping and taking care of my body and not listening uh, to what um, it was telling me. And I guess the way that I describe it in the context of how the brain functions is like we're always processing information like throughout the day, but especially in a performance setting. And information, this is simplifying it a lot, but information can kind of be classified as distractions and feedback. And so feedback is actionable. It's important. It could be feedback that you're doing everything right, like keep on doing what you're doing. It could be feedback that this pace is not sustainable or, hey, you're running out of fluids earlier than you should be, like let's get another bottle or, you know, whatever it is. And then distractions could be what the person next to you is doing, what place you're in, that I'm on course record pace. And, and when mistakes happen is when you flip-flop those things, right? So you take, oh, my stomach's hurting or I'm feeling kind of hot. You treat that as a distraction and you treat what place you're in and what the pace is as feedback. And you can kind of get confused. And that's what I had been doing is, is kind of paying attention to the wrong things. So basically it's recognizing which information is important in a given moment and which requires like an actionable or behavioral change and which needs to be dismissed. And that's something that took me a while to learn. And I think that it's something that I see a lot when mistakes are made is when people, like I said, people are like looking at the wrong information. And it's not to say that it can be explicitly labeled as those things all the time. Like there's certain points in a race, like for for example, at the end of a race, how your body's feeling is a distraction, right? Like at that point that could, it almost could flip flop and you could see, you know, okay, well, I'm, I'm getting really close to the 30 hour mark. I got to keep, I got to get moving. Like that information is important. And maybe how you're feeling is now a distraction and not as important, but it's important to recognize at what points in a process or what points in a race 
which one is important and which one you should be paying attention to, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that I'm, I'm, I'm curious and I'm kind of digging into this as I write my own book of competition. Is it, is it a good thing? Is it a healthy thing? And, and really can it, you know, and I know competition is not the same as comparison, but they seem to kind of go hand in hand. I, I think you can have, you know, you can certainly have comparison without competition, but I think it's hard to have competition without comparison. Right. And so my question is, can we just compete with ourselves and still find elite performance or in your opinion, do we, I mean, do we need competition to, to kind of push ourselves to be our best? What do you think? I think, I think that's a good question. I, I think I've actually kind of always identified with someone that almost wasn't competitive enough with other people. I'm pretty good at focusing on myself. And if I'm improving and performing the way that I want, almost to the point where at times maybe it's been a detriment and I've kind of let someone go or not found that extra gear, you know, to get second place instead of third place when it to me didn't really matter that much. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask, but, <laughs> but I, I think it depends on how you view competition because the way that I view it, especially, and I'm sure it depends on what field sport, whatever the competition setting is. But when I look at ultra running, it's relatively new sport and especially women performing in it is, is pretty new. And so a lot of times I'm looking at other uh, women's performance as proof of something I could accomplish or almost um, like setting the bar higher. So it doesn't necessarily feel negative to me. It feels like we're pushing each other to see if we can keep pushing this needle forward. And, and I think that feels different than it did when I competed on the track and, and, you know, maybe in a more, in some ways, objective setting, it didn't necessarily feel like that. It didn't feel like we were helping each other. It did feel maybe more head to head comparative. So I, I don't know. I think that it can, I think the competition is necessary to continue again, pushing the needle forward in general, but you know, it needs to be viewed as, I mean, it's motivational. That's something that you can't really deny. Like I, a lot of people are motivated by doing better, being better than someone else or placing in an age group or winning or whatever that is, but kind of going back to the identity piece, it, it more comes down to how you handle it or how you respond when you get beat because everyone's going to, no one's, you know, no one's always going to uh, win every single time. I mean, some people get pretty close, but still not every single time forever. So yeah, I, I, I think competition in a healthy way is necessary uh, to keep progressing really any area. Yeah. You know, I, I spent a lifetime in competitive sports and, and I, I think one of the refreshing things, especially for somebody like me, I know you don't, you don't really like this term and maybe we can unpack this, but I'm, I feel like I'm a recreational, you know, athlete. I kind of like the ultra world that it's, it's especially with, with, again, these middle of the pack kind of people, it's not really about beating anybody. It's really just going out there and competing with yourself. And what can I do today? And sure, it's, it's great to, to be inspired by others. But at the end of the day, I know for me personally, I'm not out there to beat anybody. So that's been kind of a nice thing for me to let that go. Because I think that for me personally, um, competition is a negative for most of my life. So I just, I feel like I see a lot of that where, where people don't have it or don't hold it in the right place. And it's more of a negative feedback mechanism than anything else. And, and that, I don't know, that bothers me because I, I think it, it demoralizes a lot of people. Let's, let's focus on this idea of a negative self-talk because you talk about this as well. And I, I have a lot of negative self-talk and, and through my ultra career, I've learned to kind of tame that, but it still comes up. How destructive is negative self-talk and how do we get around that? Yeah, we, we all have it. And that's one, I mean, I, I work in sports psychology, so I work with a lot of athletes. And that's one thing that 
we talk about almost from the beginning is I can't tell you any secrets. There is no secret to just never have negative thoughts or to never have negative self-talk. It's just to recognize when it's happening. I mean, it's not, it's not productive. It's, it's easy to recognize that it's easy to, to remember times when things were really hard or things were feeling really bad and to recognize how you were talking to yourself and acknowledge that it wasn't helping. It wasn't productive. And so actually in the field of sports psychology, we even kind of avoid negative self-talk and define it more as uh, productive or unproductive self-talk because some people can find some motivation from like, maybe like, come on, like being hard on themselves. So it's, it's more about what's mm-hmm. working and what's not working. And I think at least for me and a lot of the people I work with, I kind of already mentioned this, but it really helps me to understand how the brain functions and how it's interpreting like certain dialogue and really anything. When you think about how the brain functions, it's, it's an association maker, you know, it derives meaning from things based on the association it has with that has created with that based on like previous experience, based on what you've told it, certain things mean. And so when you think about what we would define as negative self-talk, that doesn't make anybody feel good. You know, that doesn't make you feel better. And it's not like words aren't, words aren't real, right? We created words. We, you know, this is a sound coming out of my mouth and we name it a word and then we give it a meaning. And so when you kind of break down self-talk in that way, what you're realizing the issue really is, is that you can have like a negative and unproductive, like visceral, you know, physiological reaction to certain words or phrases or like the way that you're talking to yourself. And so when you can understand that, you can recognize the literal physical impact on you when you're having that dialogue in your head. So to me, that's helpful, you know, to understand that it's not like, oh, just speak better to yourself. It's like, no, there's something happening in my brain that is then very much impacting my body, which is not putting me in a better physiological state to perform. So, you know, it could be, it doesn't even have to be replacing it with positive self-talk. Some people struggle with that. Some people struggle to be really positive in times when they're hurting. So it, it, it may not necessarily be, oh, shoot, I'm talking negatively to myself. I got to change that into a positive self-talk. That could be one strategy, but it could also just be focusing on something else, like shifting your attention externally and looking at the top of the hill. Or some people will do things like count trees or count mailboxes or whatever it is. It's just it's just really anything you can do to put a halt to that like cognitive pattern or, or thing that's happening in your mind that's not having a productive impact. All right, let's let's put this to the test. I'm going to see if I can get you to give us some free coaching. Let's say I'm, I'm at mile 60 at Leadville and my feet are just tore up. I've got blisters that are just killing me. How do I, you know, and, I, and obviously, again, we're not going to call it negative self-talk, but maybe unproductive, you know, thoughts are going through my head that the pain is, is you know, maybe unbearable. I mean, if we, if we really, you know, kind of catastrophize this, we might be thinking that. So how do I get, what would you do to get around that? What advice would you give? Yeah. So I I like this topic because I talk about, and in sports psychology, we think about attention and focus in a very literal context. And and what I mean by that is anytime you're paying attention to anything, this is simplifying, again, it is simplifying something, but you're utilizing a certain intentional, attentional style. And so in the performance setting, the example that you just gave, okay, so your feet are hurting or, and you have, you're having negative self-talk. Both, both of those experiences require internal attention. You're paying attention to yourself. And so a lot of times, and I always say this because I, I haven't necessarily seen like research on this. And it's just something that I've noticed is that when the distraction is internal, so you're having negative self-talk, things are feeling really hard. Maybe your stomach's hurting, your feet are hurting. Sometimes people will try to 
maybe start repeating a mantra or maybe focus on their breathing or, or something like that. And maybe it works for a few minutes, but it seems like it just strays back to like the thing that was distracting you. And, and the reason is because those both require an internal attentional style. And so it's almost like the strategy you're using isn't different enough from the distraction. And so what tends to be more productive is to find something to distract yourself externally. So whether that's like having a conversation with someone next to you, I'm, I do that all the time to like get out of my head, to get out of my body for a few minutes, whether that's Ooh. getting distracted by the view, you know, nature, whether that's, again, like I said, picking, focusing on a point up the hill or up the trail, anything that gets your, your brain can't register two things at once, at least not very well. And then on the flip side, you know, sometimes a distraction might be, especially in ultra sometimes like the weather could be horrible and it could be miserable and that's an external distraction and whatever, you know, whatever could be happening in your environment that's really distracting could be the terrain. You're like climbing a really steep hill and you look up and it just keeps going. Like the, those are both external distractions. So sometimes it can be more productive to then go internally. Then maybe you start singing a song, then you start repeating a mantra or something like that, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. It just matters to recognize what the distraction is, what kind of attention it requires, and then implementing a strategy that shifts your attention as far away from that kind of attention as possible. I'm laughing because, you know, that might be applied to maybe going up Hope Pass in the middle of the 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 100 where you don't look up, you know, just look at the next step in front of you. That's especially on the backside. That's tough. This is good. I like this. Uh, So I have a friend that is about to attempt uh, her first 50 mile race. She's had two unsuccessful starts at at the 50 mile distance, and this will be her third time. And she's well-trained. I think the physical side of it has been taken care of. And what advice would you, I'm trying to get some free coaching out of here, but what advice would you give to her from the mental side as she goes into this third race? What would you say to her and, and maybe just to keep her head in the right place? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard not without much more context because I would, I would maybe first want to understand what went wrong, you know, in the first two races, but I, I would imagine trying something, attempting something for the third time, you could almost be going in already in a threatened state. Like, gosh, I hope I don't DNF a third time, or I hope like almost making it bigger than it is because now it's mm-hmm. third attempt. So this, as the saying goes, like, don't ever look where you don't want to go, you know? So anytime you're going into a race with, and I'm not suggesting that she is thinking this, but what I would Mm -hmm. think would be a trap or potentially a a negative thought process or unproductive thought process would be, I got to do it this time. I didn't do it the first two times. And now like it has to happen this time. And, And like I said, kind of making it a bigger deal than it is. And instead, you know, it can be, especially with ultras, like you said earlier, it's, it's hard to make that jump in your mind sometime, right? Like training wise, you're not going to get anywhere near race distance. And so if she's tried these other two races and hasn't finished and now is trying a third time and has maybe no reference point or actual experience that she can, uh, that says that she can't do that thing. It can be hard to like conjure that up or create that in your mind. But what I found to be one of the most consistent trends with every person that I've talked to or interviewed for my book, you know, that's an ultra runner is this very, curious and open mind for how things are going to turn out. So, you know, maybe she's had these experiences in the past that that didn't work out the way she wanted. And so instead of going into this race, like, gosh, I I really hope it goes this way this time, you know, just being really open-minded and curious. Like, I don't know how it's going to play out. I know that I'm prepared and I know that I'm trained, but I also know things are probably going to go sideways at some point and that's okay. That's part of racing ultras and I can adapt and like, I can handle that. And for some reason, not for some reason, it makes sense why, but that, that just tends to create such a 
calmer mind and one that accepts that it's going to be hard and that things aren't going to go perfectly and kind of fosters this like open-minded, I'm ready for anything and we'll see what happens, you know, rather than kind of going in afraid or thinking worst possible scenarios or ideal scenarios. You know, like there's like really an in-between. We either think of everything yeah. that goes wrong or we think about like this triumphant experience, but not this in-between. That's fine. I think that's important, you know, to, and I know you've talked about this in other podcasts is not to look at the race as expecting it to go ideally and know that, especially with long ultras, something crazy is going to happen. And how do you adapt to that? I think is, is important. You know, one thing that I've played around with Addie is I know in long races that when I get overstressed and, and this is not just me, but when I get overstressed, my body starts to shut down and I can't drink, I can't eat, you know, everything starts going sideways. And I don't know if you can avoid that, especially in a long distance race, you know, 50 miles or more. I think I almost feel like at some point you're going to get to that, that level, but I try to hold that off as long as I can. And so what I try to do, uh, you know, throughout my career is I try to keep myself calm as long as possible. And one of the things that I've been playing around with is when I feel like I'm, I'm getting overly stressed and, you know, to use a little bit of, you know, neuroscience, my sympathetic nervous system, I, I feel like it's getting activated. And that comes from, and I know you're really big on this term, self-awareness. Mm -hmm. I'm paying attention. So I start to do breathing exercises in the middle of a race. I'll do some breathing exercise to bring, you know, just calm myself and hopefully re-engage my parasympathetic nervous system, which is going to calm me down. Have you seen any research around that? I mean, I've just come up with this on my own because of what I know about how the brain works, but it seems to work for me pretty well to keep myself calm as long as possible. What are your thoughts? I mean, totally. Yeah. When you think about like, doing something hard physically is already stressing your nervous system. And then when you think about getting anxious or about whatever's happening, then yeah, that's turning on your sympathetic nervous system even more. And, and when we talk about what we know about that, it's, it's funny because there's like, you know, these, this checklist of things that happen before races when people are nervous, right? Like it's hard to eat breakfast and people are like going to the bathroom a lot and you're like kind of sweaty and jittery and all those things, they aren't, abstract. Those are real. Like that's a real physiological response to your sympathetic nervous system. And so it makes sense why it's hard to eat and drink when that's turned on. It makes sense why it's hard to like make good decisions when that's turned on, because our brain is not designed to do that, those things when it's in that state. And so one, one place I always start with people when talking about this, this topic specifically is like, your body is doing what it should be doing based on what you're telling it in terms of like letting it think this is like a stressful situation. And, and now your, your stress response is turned on the key. Like you just mentioned is to not try to like have those symptoms go away. It's to turn down the sympathetic nervous system, turn down the, the stress response and like the threatening perception of what's happening. And breathing is one of the most effective and quickest ways to do that. So hundred percent, there's so much research on that specifically. There's a very specific breathing technique, but, but absolutely, you know, it, it targets your nervous system and quite literally just turns it down so that it kind of eases off some of those symptoms. I'm laughing because my former coach, Leslie Patterson was my coach. If you know, Leslie or know of her, she would always laugh that she knew she was going to have a good race if she used the bathroom four times before a race. <laughs> so this is always kind of a funny thing that whenever you get nervous before a race, uh, expect that you're going to be using those porta potties a, a fair amount. That's totally normal. Let's let's focus in on this this idea of self self awareness. How important is that? I know again, I know you're you're really big on this. As am I. How does self awareness help us uh, be better better athletes and maybe better at life? Oh, it's the most important thing. It's self-awareness. I don't think that there's anything more important 
to just being a well-functioning human. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think I heard this somewhere, so I can't take credit for this, but this is what I like really opened my eyes and kind of like shook me awake. Like this is important is that it, I, I've said it a couple of times, this would be simplifying it. I don't, this isn't like necessarily 100% explicitly true, but for the most part, you know, humans, we, we're one of the only species that kind of has that ability to look at our behaviors and then reverse engineer and say, well, I don't really like that behavior. What's happening there? What am I, what was like the instigating event? What was my perception or thought process, et cetera. And, and then how can I change that? And to like give up that ability is kind of crazy. You know, there's like so many benefits to that, to just understanding yourself better. You know, there's never, our, our behaviors throughout a day aren't sporadic or erratic, you know, things are, are either subconsciously or consciously kind of initiating them and to pass up the opportunity to kind of examine yourself and, and try to figure that out and realize like, okay, well, what am I thinking about and what am I doing and who am I around when my behaviors are what I want them to be? And then on the flip side, what, what am I thinking about? What am I focusing on when they're not what I want them to be? And then how can I change that? Like, there's absolutely nothing more important than that. Just to, to like just to exist in the world as a happier, healthier, more productive person, much less in the performance setting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like it, it's clues that your your body, your body mind system is giving you clues all day long, and I think it's up to us to to notice them and, and then maybe dig down and say, okay, why is that happening? You know, I always like to center on like agitation. Why am I agitated right now? I think we can learn a lot from that. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit. One of the things that, that's kind of fascinating to me is in long distance ultras or really any endurance sports, it's really, I think the research will show that the gap between men and women starts to shrink and, and, and certainly in terms of, of performance. And I'm fascinated by that, uh, that it's almost like endurance sports levels the playing field in some some sense. And it also, I think, brings to light that, hey, the other thing that I know from research is that men and women score almost identical in mental toughness. And so I think those two things are kind of at play. And so, you know, back in 2000, I think it was 2017, Courtney Dewalter, you know, raced the Moab 240 mile race. And not only did she win and really beat everybody, but the second place man was 10 hours behind her. Do you think we're going to see more and more of this as we move into the future with endurance racing, where we see women, not only besting the field, but really closing that gap. Yeah, absolutely. I this is, I actually did a, a big regional presentation about this in, in within sports psychology. And and even when you look at the, the race we talked about a couple of times, Biggs Backyard, Maggie Guterell won one year and then Courtney Dewalter won the next year. Two years in a row, it was a female. And what's even more interesting is percentage-wise, there's less, there's quite a lot less females competing in these races to begin with. So there already are less, like fewer numbers of women, yet there's still... I mean, even I've seen recently, I won my first race outright, I think a year ago, and now I'm pretty frequently in the top three or four overall. And that's something that's, that's newer. So I've heard there are people that will argue that women have a like physiological advantage as the distances get longer, just with our body makeup. And I could get behind that and maybe agree that it levels it a bit, but it would be hard to convince me that they, that we have an advantage over men. If anything, maybe it just like levels the physiological side. So really what to me that leaves is the mental side. And so when I was researching this topic specifically, I kind of got curious about it and it took me down a track of like, okay, well, if we're not, even, let's not even talk about necessarily winning. Let's just talk about like performance in general. And, and what we noticed, there was someone that did a study on 
hundreds of marathons and it was looking at dropout rates and how much more men drop out than women. And then there was even a further study looking at some races with the most like horrendous conditions like bad water, or I think someone did one about the Boston marathon a few years ago when it was freezing and raining and terrible and more women finish and not just like a small amount, like high percentages of women continue and finish the race, whereas high amounts of men drop out of the race. And so, yeah, I think there's a psychological component that is like undeniable and it's extremely fascinating. And I mean, there could be all kinds of theories. The unfortunate thing, and that I, I really hope this changes, is ultra running hasn't gained a lot of traction within sports psychology yet. So there's not a lot of research that's been done on these topics. You know, we can have these numbers and people can kind of go through race results and comb through and we have the data that's saying this is happening but there's not really been um, much, much insight into why it's happening. So I think it could be a lot of things. I'm sure there are biological factors, you know, women are, we're designed to be in child labor for 20 yeah, hours. Yeah. If we need to be, you know, men, one of the issues with dropouts and performance is they tend to go out harder, you know, and when women are better at pacing and kind of take it easy, taking it easier earlier. And that could, you know, definitely be attributed to like biological, psychological, you know, mentality. So those things are at play for sure. But I, I really hope that it starts to gain more attention and insight and that there's more actual like legitimate research done like into this topic. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I've heard things like maybe women are better at dealing with pain because of, of childbirth. Like you said, I've, I've seen some stuff around that. And you're right. The idea that, that and again, I'm, I'm painting with a broad stroke here that not all men and women are the same, but women tend to be a little more patient a lot of times than men. With the explosion of you know endurance sports, I think uh, hopefully we'll start to see some of that that research that you're talking about. So let's you know we've been talking about all this, and let's talk about your book. You recently released a book, Mental Training for Ultra Runners, which I I looked through the chapters and I know I just I got to go out and buy it. So. Why did you write this book and who is this geared toward? Who is your reader? I, I mean, the main reason I wrote it is because I wanted it to exist and it didn't. And so, yeah, I really started as like, gosh, somebody should really write a book on this. And then I was kind of in grad school and I was thinking about it and had some mentors and stuff that suggested like, maybe you should write it. So I think that it's for anybody, to be honest, it's definitely written within the framework of ultra running, but it could be applied to just life in general, but definitely to runners at all distances, even marathon, like below marathon distances. But yeah, the main reason I wrote it is I just, I just felt like it was something that needed to exist within the sport. And I will be the first to say, you know, I, I think of it as I'm standing on the shoulders of giants with this book. You know, there's so many people who have so many great ideas and concepts that maybe just haven't been filtered through ultra running. And so if anything, I just wanted to give people a resource and kind of a glimpse into kind of what I sifted out to be the most important mental skills to be successful at ultra running. And then provided, you know, some like snapshot, every chapter could be a whole book. So some snapshots or, or major concepts, but then I think the most valuable part of the book is the reference list. You know, there's 50 books and articles and research studies that are so there's just like so chock full with information that's helpful. So it, it, yeah, it, it was literally something that I just felt like needed to be out there and it was really fun to write. And it's kind of a combination of just general psychology and human behavior mixed with some understandings of ultra running mixed with a lot of really cool conversations I had with people leading the sport, like Jim Wamsley and Courtney DeWalter and Claire Gallagher, Camille Hare, and all these people, you know, a little glimpse into their brain and how they're utilizing these concepts. And then the biggest piece that was so important to me was I didn't want to write another book where people walked away from it saying, okay, I get it. These concepts are important. 
all these other like elite professionals are doing this. How do I do it? So it's throughout the book, there's worksheets, tools, techniques that are suggested that the reader take away and kind of implement into their own training in their own life to take those concepts and apply them to themselves. That was really important to me to have uh, takeaways and actionable steps people could take to start building this into their own life. Oh boy, I love that. So that what I'm hearing is this is valuable for even, you know, back of the packers like myself. Absolutely. Yeah. Running is relative. That's, that's something I feel strongly about. We're all taking the same journey. Someone might do it a little faster, but it's not that much different. And that's, that's why I think the community is so close to everybody's having a similar experience. Yeah. The ultra running uh, community has been amazing for me. Do you think that the athletes in general kind of ignore the mental side of it? Is, is that, do you think that not only do we ignore it and, and do you see that changing? Yeah, I, I would be, it would be hard for me to say athletes ignore it, but I don't think many athletes are intentional about it. And so I think it's easy to believe that the mental piece will fall into place if you're doing the physical side. And that happens in some sentence, like, and you definitely see elite athletes who have clearly developed psychological skills through their training and through influences from coaches and whomever, and, but maybe they don't have the language for it that we would, but it's, it's not always integrated intentionally. And so I think that that's missed a lot. The other piece is it's mental training. You know, you don't just gain one of these psychological skills and then all of a sudden you have it. It's something that needs to be constantly worked on and engaged with in an intentional way. And so it's more that piece. I, I, I don't believe there's as much self-awareness and intention, intentionality behind it um, as there should be. And when I reflected on myself, I was never exposed to the idea of sports psychology until I was in my thirties. So when I think back to college and being at a major division one university and competing at the elite level after college, I, I knew that I had some mental skills, but I always, you know, the race would go off and I would think like, I wonder how I'm going to feel today. And it was like up to chance, like either I was on that day or I wasn't. And I didn't necessarily believe I had control over that. I just kind Mm. of thought that it was Either I'm going to have a good day or I'm going to have a bad day, like mentally. And um, that's kind of unfortunate to think back and look at that. Yeah, boy. So if I'm summarizing, be intentional and practice it, right? We, we, we need to practice that so that it's, it's ready to go on race day. And, and I would, I'd probably add to that, you know, each race, learn something from that. How'd that go? How do I feel going into it? How, you know, what was my performance? And then try to connect those dots. I'm often telling people to keep a journal about their race performances so they can really kind of zero in on that psychological component of how was I feeling? Where was my arousal level as I got ready for this race and that sort of thing? This is great. I feel like I could do this for hours. I'm fascinated by this topic. How can people work with you, Addie? What's going on in your world right now outside of your own racing? How can people get a hold of you and maybe work with you? Yeah, so I have a private practice providing mental performance training and kind of sports psychology consulting to athletes. And I, you know, I work with professionals, I work with Olympic athletes, but I work with like, like you would described as, you know, back of the Packers, middle of the Packers. To me, it's all relative and anybody out there pushing uh, is going to benefit from these things. And my favorite thing about sports psychology and mental performance is all the skills are transferable. They're transferable into jobs, relationships, daily life. So that's kind of the most rewarding. So that practice is called strive mental performance just at stridementalperformance.com. And, and otherwise, you know, there's, gosh, hundreds of amazing consultants throughout the country. So if it's not with me, there's plenty of people that are really great uh, at working with people on uh, mental performance training. There's plenty of books and great resources if you're not quite ready to make that jump. But the main piece or the main takeaway is don't pass up the resource. I mean, it's one of the most accessible performance enhancing 
things you can do. And it's, we all have access to the same resource. You know, there's no one that has a benefit over anybody else, which is not the case for physical, you know, natural physical ability all the time. So I hope anytime I do these conversations, I hope people take away from it, at least like search some kind of resource for yourself. And if you're not, you're kind of passing up a lot that could be really um, helpful to performing better, but just helpful to being, like I said, a happier, healthier athlete with kind of better perspective. Yeah. I always say, if you feel like you didn't win the genetic lottery, when it came to the physical aspect, that here's a place, you know, you can focus in on that psychological, that mental side. Maybe that's a place where it's a little more of a level playing field. All right, let's get to the signature question. Addie, if you're up for it, what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? Gosh, I, that would be a hard one. I definitely failed a lot. I think one of the times where I failed and it was kind of the biggest turning point in my life was when I finished my track career. I had I had qualified for the Olympic trials in 2012. In 2016, I was trying to qualify again and I just wasn't getting close. I was getting further and further away and for some reason just kind of wouldn't let go of it and eventually did. And with very, I'm, I'm summing up a big part of my life in a very small amount, but once I did is when I found trail running and my life changed in ways I couldn't possibly imagine. And I, I think the lesson I learned was I was holding on to an idea of something so tightly and trying to force something to happen so much, even though it was consistently not happening or telling me that maybe this isn't the right path, or maybe it's time to make a change. And I was resisting that so much to the point where not only was I not performing well, but I wasn't happy, just really lost touch with a lot of things that should have been important. And when I finally just let go of that and was willing to accept it, it, it just, my life pivoted in a way that I could not have even planned. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes the best thing to do is to kind of let go and maybe just see what happens. And that was hard for me because I think as an athlete, you know, you want to keep pushing and tough it out and I can figure this out and I'll eventually it'll turn around. And yeah, just the magic happened when I let that go. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.